Look out. Surging up from the depths of the sea. Horrifying, mysterious creatures whose attack on people sends the whole countryside on an endless search. And unless something is done, and done quickly. Is this the end of our civilization? You pioneer with us the perilous descent into the unknown. What does that mean? What are you even talking about? A deep, penetrating dive. In the last calm and reflective moment, before the monsters came, from the deep dive. Welcome to the podcast Humanoids from the Deep Dive, where we dig deep into the meanings and contexts of your favorite monsters and monster movies. Each episode, we'll see guests and myself give our take on an important movie monster and its media and what we think it means using everything from history and philosophy to films and folklore. So our second movie for uh, this episode is Clive Barker's classic Hellraiser. Y'all probably know the plot, folks at home. A scruffy bad boy named Frank, played by... (laughs) (laughs) I told you! Uh, (laughs) ...is bored with having tasted all the pleasures that this world has to offer. So to sate his desires, he seeks out and he acquires this box called the Lament Configuration that also seems, for the record, like it's maybe sold in a very similar shop to where they get the gremlins at the beginning of Gremlins. (laughs) Yeah, hundred <laughs> percent. I think it's really nice. um, just don't water the lament configuration after midnight. Um, so Frank gets more than he bargained for when he opens. He he solves the puzzle box and he summons these a specific type of demon called Cenobites, who are also aka fun fact S and M demons, mm-hmm. and that's literally canon. And then we don't find out for a hot minute what actually happens to to frank <laughs> it's a hot minute so we cut to frank's brother larry played by andrew robinson and his wife julia claire higgins they move into this family home that we find out frank was doing this ritual in and julia it seems had a fling with frank behind larry's back and in the words of our fine um, co-host, she's willing to do, I won't name who, I'll just, you'll find out at the end of the episode. Um, she's willing to do anything to get that Frank D, even if it means hammering to death randos she picks up at a bar. Uh, and this whole smorgasbord of weird characters, we find out that Larry has a plucky daughter named Chris played by Ashley Lawrence, who right. discovers in, in what Julia's nefarious schemes are. And the question is, will everyone live happily ever after, even as dark soap opera of whips, chains, and demons? Uh, that was a sweet intro. Yeah. I mean, that's what it says in the back of the box that, of the copy I have. <laughs> Plucky daughter. Down to Frank's piece. Ruffy boy Frank. Ruffy bad boy. B-O-I. This is like we got the, the author of uh, Fifty Shades of Grey to describe Hellraiser um, over a text no, message. No, because Fifty Shades sucks. This is Fifty no, Shades of Grey. No, yeah. no, see, this, this like picture me like I'm in... I'm I I I'm sitting on the bed. I'm like writing I'm my in a bubble bath. Yeah, no, like no, no, no. I'm in like like that like that classic like I'm like laying on my stomach writing like with the fire like, going like Frank plus me like this sounds like a French Renaissance painting right now. <laughs> I, yeah, basically, it's, 
it's all that and, and so much more. Um, no, I just like I, I know it's like okay, he's like much more than like a bad boy, but like as a, as a teenager, I'm always like. I was kind of like, oh, he's like this, like kind of scruffy bad boy. I'm just like, hearing, like, I'm just hearing music, like S and M demons in red. <laughs> I just Frank is one of the most repulsive people in cinema, and you're just reducing to a scruffy bad boy. Fucking murders me, man. <laughs> Um, it's like he's it's like he's the back center folded like a tiger beat like knockoff. No, so it's just <laughs> Okay, so so for context, folks at home, I'm sure y'all know Hellraiser. But the Cenobites are these uh so they're not demons in the typical sense, like fallen angels, this and that and the other thing. Um they're help you know, like like Pinhead, their leader, is a hell priest, and their specific type of possibly demons but kind of their own thing because demons are supposed to be fallen angels but all the cenobites are people that are turned into these uh the specific type of creation and they're in this sort of subunit of hell like this little like level if it were a if it were like an office sky rise that, <laughs> that um you solve this puzzle box called the limit configuration which is super easy to solve, by the way. And <laughs> it's just like three little turns. It's not like a Rubik's Cube. And then you're basically pulled into this realm where uh, unam- like pleasure and pain are the same thing. So much so that the worthy ones get physically transformed themselves into Cenobites. Um and you know leather clad pierced body modification heavy demons that that keep pulling in hedonists basically super hedonists into this massive celestial snm dungeon basically is that fair yep yeah yeah and they pleasure pain you to death yeah same into thing tiny same pieces thing. I will say it's like in a rubberous spectrum, I think, for them. Yeah. Like, and the interesting thing about the, the that sets this particular, because there's, I don't know, eight Hellraisers, maybe? There's a lot. Yes, like a there's a ton. There really is. There's only three or four we talk about, but there are many. <laughs> <laughs> it's like it's a, the series itself has become like Archdukes of Hell. Just don't mention them. But I love them all. I love everyone. <laughs> like, if you have eight children, you love them all equally. But your first three are the best. <laughs> <laughs> We're sorry, kids, five through eight. You kind of suck. Yeah, you can tell it's just like the names get less creative. You're like, Alexander. Cleopatra and then Achilles, you just stop trying. And then it's like Fred. <laughs> Diminishing return, Junior. Yeah, exactly. Oh, no. But um But so so Frank's uh he he gets, you know, he solves the box, he gets pulled into the Cenobites realm, and then he escapes. And the reason why Julia is killing people is because their blood allows him to take progressive form. He never really gets his skin back, but but he's this you know, no, he, he goes on stealing people's skin. He's stealing Rude. skin. He's just a jerk. Yeah, yeah. 
He's just, he's just a, a bad boy. You're not a nice man. He's just a misunderstood bad boy, you guys. He just isn't a nice man. <laughs> the final step was that leather jacket. But I, I kind of want to, uh, Mike, I feel as the uh, writer of our absolutely <laughs> Fifty Shades of Great intro, um, <laughs> want your great. review first, good sir. Uh, yeah, so I, 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 so I was um, saying that this is definitely, there's maybe like five or six like very formative movies that really not only shaped my cinematic worldview but just kind of changed me as a person and i think that this one is certainly among those um Mm -hmm. i mean i I, again i saw it just the right time i it was like uh like mid-teens where you know every everything is like amped up to the max uh right so like that's Mm -hmm. kind of the perfect movie uh and a perfect time to kind of see that movie yeah, so I mean, it's almost like Barker kind of like took my, uh, you know, awakening sexuality and just kind of like had it right in the palm of his hand. I mean, mm-hmm. it, it's just there's so much like it, it's like um, horrific imagery, but it's also like kind of sexy and like mm-hmm. not, I mean, like gross, but then also super alluring. Which again, I think is is so brilliant because like that's kind of what the the whole ethos of the movie is, right? Like it, it's like you know pe- pleasure, ple- uh, pain. I mean, just uh, the lines get blurred, and that's um, kind of how like Barker brilliantly uh, frames this whole thing. Even just like how he um, and the cinematographer just uh, make these. Uh, horrific things look absolutely gorgeous, right? Um, mm-hmm. Just beautiful, like the lighting, the mood lighting. Gosh, I could go on and on. Christopher Young's amazing score. You know, I mean, even like Julia, who's like someone that's so reprehensible. I kind of like even. I mean, especially as I got older, I'm like, you know, God, I I don't fully blame her. <laughs> she just wants the good D, you know. Um, <laughs> I mean, I don't know how else to say it. I mean, but um, yeah. So I mean, this movie just like blew my mind apart, and I, like I, I don't think it's that controversial to say that I think the the sequel's even better. I mean, I feel like it. It's it really is great. Uh, I feel like it's like I feel like the, I mean the first movie's a classic. I feel like the second one is like they somehow took the magic of the first one and made it. Even more expansive and interesting. You know, yeah, it it just hit me. Uh, we have two pretty pretty major connections between the two movies yeah. we talked about today. Is that we have Christopher Young's score, and then we have differing approaches to what should be cheap, cheapy, quickie sequels. Because Hellraiser, Hellbound was released within a year of Hellraiser coming out, yeah. as well as Nightmare on Elm Street too. It's just interesting approaches. Um, let's say financially in the same way, but creatively two very different movies. It's interesting. Yeah, no, I mean, I, uh, who was it? Was it Andrew? Were you the one that pointed out or was it Jeff that pointed out? Yeah. Uh, Christopher Young did the score for both of those. I don't know why. I I, I, I can't take credit for that smartness. Okay. Yeah. Because I'm like, holy crap, you're right. Because like, I, 
totally forget like how many awesome scores Young's done. Like, uh, I mean, I can say this for later, but like, I got to meet like the cast, and I got to like later on, I got to meet Christopher Young, and that that's a whole other cool story. But yeah, like it, it's just one of those movies that like you know it, it's just I was not the same person coming out of the movie, and there's mm-hmm. it's so rare I can count on maybe one hand. Like another one is like Night of Living Dead, where it just totally sh- reshaped how I think about everything. Not only just movie wise, but just living as a person. Um, yeah. Which again, that's I mean, I, I if that might sound pretentious, but I mean that's just how I feel. Like it's it, it's one of those movies that means an awful lot to me. Yeah. So I would give it like a I would give it a five out of four if I could. So cool. <laughs> uh, just really quick. Um, so the the band Coil apparently originally did the soundtrack to this movie because uh, Clyde Burke was a big fan of, of them and also of like the finished product that they produced for the movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, hmm. But the studio decided to have the film rescored. So that's how we got the Christopher Young score. But the Coil soundtrack is still out there. Uh, it's on a CD called Unnatural History 2, Smiling in the Face of Perversity. Uh, and yes, another did. album that called should like, be the Unreleased Themes for Hellraiser. my autobiography, by the way. <laughs> this is true. Unnatural, Unnatural History 2. Smiling in the Face of Perversity. But yeah, like, as far as I know, it's still fairly rare. Uh, I, don't, I don't even know I, like where you can find it. I'd love to hear it. Because oh, yeah. I imagine it's, I love Coil, and I imagine it's great, but Christopher mm-hmm. Young's, that the score to Hellraiser is yeah. probably one of the most sumptuous scores in the genre, and I'll go to bat with his score for Nightmare 2 being the, my favorite score in that series. Mm-hmm. It's it's weird and haunting, and he's a genius. Yeah. I really love the score to this movie. Um, yeah, like, it was really cool, like, I don't know if, like... I can since we're already talking about him, like I so I got to meet him um, at Monster Bash. And it was kind of amazing because like he had like nobody uh, was at his table, so I just like he just walked right up and I was like, you know, I have to say I think like you did like one of the greatest uh, f- like horror scores, like maybe like of all time. And so of course, you know, like that's a good icebreaker. And then what really was a kicker was I was like, you know, uh, drag me to hell is a goddamn brilliant score. And I, I, so what was really cool was like, um, I was like, yeah, you know, um, the score kind of reminded me of, you know, like the original, uh, forties Wolfman, you know, it had like the kind of like gypsy theme and it kind of like, it kind of invoked that kind of feeling. And he, looked like stunned and i was like what the fuck did i just say and he's like you described that just like sam raimi did of like how i wanted the score and he grabbed my hand and shook it and like that was like the coolest thing and i was like you know this was like awesome because not only was he like super nice um but yeah, it was like I kind of had like an insight that like was pretty on the nose, um, like so much so that he said it was almost verbatim um, of how cool. Sam Raimi was like, this is how I want it. His, 
his music has never quite fit the mold of what you think of with horror film scores, especially modern horror film scores. They're, they're throwback, beautiful pieces. Um, you know, like I always thought of the Hellraiser score as a waltz. Um, it's a red curtains, you know, it's, it's, it's ageless and beautiful. And like, I just, the man never gets enough credit. Mm -hmm. Uh, And really like for anybody who listens to this, Next time you watch Hellraiser, really listen to that music. It is Frank's resurrection is <laughs> just an amazing, not just a scene, but that music just, it's beautiful. It makes the scene. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It and does. it's the antithesis of what any other film or what any other composer would do. Because he's, that's always kind of like the, the miracle with Barker's work is the elegance in his prose, the elegance in his brushwork, the uh, elegance in, in, the violence he portrays and and I love that Christopher Young had felt like um, he just that's what he latched onto and that's exactly what you need to help yeah. God I love this movie yeah I mean like to, to to get like a really like like listen to like just watch the movie without the score and then watch it with the score it's like mm-hmm. it's it's so transformative it's like Halloween and and the score yeah oh God yeah I couldn't imagine Hellraiser without the score. Yeah. No. <laughs> no, it works so perfectly. But but I feel like this is a good transition point, Andrew, for you to kind of give your review of the film. Oh, oh absolutely. Uh, I, I actually, I think like Mike, I saw Hellbound first. And um, I, I talk about watching Hellbound. I was not prepared. I was young. And um, I've talked about it before on the show, so I won't bore you. But like, it, it hit me hard. I wasn't, I'd never seen anything like this. The extremity of the violence the relentlessness of it the beauty of it all um i was transfixed so i remember leaving my friend's house and like immediately gobbling up i think uh three had just come out on like vhs and um i just it hit me like a ton of bricks there's just something there's nothing like hellraiser um it's images it's it's a it's a painting come to life and and because of it i discovered Barker's, you know, his his work. I immediately was like, "Give me money! I need to go buy the Books of Blood. I need to buy, you know, the Damnation Game." And I, I, I dove headfirst. This movie is one of those rare, for me, like five star experiences. I just, I think every actor, every, uh, the, just the makeup department, Christopher Young's music, Robert Vigian's, um beautiful, like soft, because it the the pastiche that this plays on is is kind of wonderful and that it's very much a domestic drama it, you could remove the cenobites and just keep it kinky sex and betrayal of marriage and and but barker had the foresight to add sadomasochists from beyond the grave to this thing and, and <laughs> mythalize sex and 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 particularly like kinks and and uh, I don't know this, this this movie like it's it's famous for a reason and it's I I don't know five out of five I love it it's I got to save all my thoughts for later yeah yeah love it but, <laughs> but thank yeah. you for that it's 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 a uh, it's a favorite of mine too <clears throat> maybe Andre how about you go next yeah um, before I do I just want to offer another tidbit fun little tidbit uh, so the the original film title was supposed to be the hellbound heart um, based on the, it's using the same title as the novella. 
so the studio turned it down because they thought that it sounded too much like a romance picture and they asked Clyde Barker to change it. So then that's when he offered sadomasochists from beyond the grave, which was rejected. Uh, and then he was like, okay, let's open the floor to the production team and, uh, let's have them like suggest a title and, uh, a 60 year old, uh, female crew member, uh, she posited the the title, uh, "What a woman will do for a good fuck." <laughs> <laughs> so that's that's how we got Hellraiser. Oh, <laughs> okay. I just thought that was kind of a fun little thing. <laughs> anyway, five out of five. <laughs> but but no, seriously, uh, th- this is one of like my first uh, formative like uh, true uh, horror experiences. Um, I watched it for the first time with, with a group of friends and we were prepared to just, you know, like ha- have a good time with the movie, but sort of at its expense. But the movie was just like, no, you are like under my control. So we, we were just completely, uh, just taken over and, um, uh, it just immediately transcended all expectations that I was going into this movie with. And uh, every single rewatch that I do of this movie is it still has the same impact for me. Mm-hmm. Like it's it's a perfect um, doomed romance movie. It's a mm-hmm. perfect uh, like escaping a predatory um, foe family member and real family member mm-hmm. coming back from the grave. And it it's a perfect demonic uh ish entity movie it it has so many things to offer and everything that it offers uh just knocks it out of the park every time Mm -hmm. uh so yeah i mean definitely five out of five like this movie has never uh like diminished in my opinion or perspective of it it's always delivered yeah I, i couldn't agree more i think it's um well, we'll get to that. Um, I think it's a wonderful film. Uh, thank you so much, uh, all of you so far. Uh, Luna, I'd love to hear your thoughts. Absolutely. Um, so I, I, I mean, it may not be surprising, I adore this film. Um, my journey coming to it, so um, I grew up in a very rural, very conservative, very white place. Um, and then when I went to college, I discovered that there were people like me, not just brown, but also into, like, goth shit and metal mm-hmm. shit and punk shit and, like, w- wore the stuff that I was wearing, but I was the weirdo at school, but this was, like, normal. And I was like, okay, so I found my community. And then, like, it was, like, within a year or so um, when my ex showed me this film and I was like, what? <laughs> Like, it just opened everything (laughs) up for me, Um, especially the goth club that I had um, been introduced to when I moved to college, as many are, doubled as a fetish night. Um, And so I was also discovering all of that. And then I saw this movie and I was like, wow, visual representation of what I felt like I was experiencing in this extremely small bubble. Mm -hmm. So I was like, oh, 
this is a thing, like a bigger thing. Um, obviously, like nobody at Fetish Club is ripping people into tiny shreds and then soaking their being into the floor when the box is solved. But, um, <laughs> you know, like the other Not stuff. The ones you go through. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Unrealistic expectations. Yeah, just like, <laughs> like, you know, that takes it to like 15 out of 10. Yeah, back down to like a nice eight or nine on an average day. Yeah, yeah, exactly. See, you get what I'm saying. I get you. <laughs> but yeah, so, um, but the story itself, like I, I love tragic stories. And in this film, nobody wins. Nobody. And mm-hmm. I can't, I mean, you maybe say the Cenobites win, but like, do they though? Like, is there a winning? I'm not sure that their existence is varies like there's no depth to they're just always pleasure pain pleasure pain this is this is where they're at all the time um and so in my view i don't think anyone wins um and it just it's just a beautiful story of like everything that andre just said um so i won't you know repeat all of it just i think that um the film is a has a very special place in my heart. I think that it's important. There are things I don't like about the film, um, which I don't think a lot of people talk about because we're always like, oh, it's so amazing. But like, I can't stand Julia's performance. Makes me want to punch things every time. But um, <laughs> but it is, a, I mean, it's an amazing film. And so I give it five out of five. Love it. Uh, thank you for that. I, I share your thoughts on the complexity and Juliet, not my favorite part. Um, I would say the one winner is that scorpion tailed strange hallway demon. Oh, I oh, totally forgot about that. The engineer. The, the engineer. The engineer. Yeah. The engineer yeah. Is one winner, I would say. No, no. The one winner, the, uh, the guy who keeps selling the box, he keeps getting the money. That's and true. He his box back and he never has to <laughs> give a refund. So, endless problem i was really happy when they before returning the box to him cleaned the blood off like that yeah. was just a thoughtful way to restore. very thoughtful always leave something better than when you found it he- <laughs> i mean i wouldn't be surprised if he keeps some lysol wipes under the counter though too <laughs> do you really honestly think that like cricket eating like hom- hobo like cleans that box off he turns into a demon flies it drops it off it's all on the the shopkeeper sadly <laughs> i mean i'm pretty sure he spit shines it but like the shopkeeper uses those lysol wipes on it afterwards i mean it kind of comes with the territory the fact that he's willing to take used boxes you know i think you understand you have to do oh. some restoration <laughs> yeah true true Wait, a box is a box you sound just like frank you sound just like that scruffy bad boy Frank. Oh, that, <laughs> box that, is a box. that bad boy, that rapscallion. Uh oh. <laughs> okay, so <laughs> scruffy bad boy for the win. Um, so I, I, this is a film that I keep coming back to because I love anything Clive Barker. I really do. His films mm-hmm. just make me happy. Um, but everything about this movie. Uh, is designed to make me like it almost because it it has a big it like bats for the fences with the mythos it adds so much and adds such creative entities everyone has their own original and iconic design um it's not you know they they may or may not be classified as demons it's really up to interpretation to some degree but 
in the in the traditional sense at least but the the punishment for all of this um the hedonistic drive that causes one to seek out the puzzle box isn't penalized in the like morally like you are a bad person sort of way it's more just like cause and effect like you fall down you get hurt you know um it's so it's it's uh i just love that it's clearly like, like the movies themselves in terms of like the ideas are amazing the execution for this film is really good i actually think the editing is some of the best in any clive barker film that i've seen it's just a tight mm-hmm. like film from start to finish uh i love frank's performance is is really good and larry's performance when he becomes frank wearing larry uh is really good uh there's just so much that i like about it um we can get to some of the deep dive stuff later but it's just spectacular world building it never gets old like like you said andre it always hits for me and I just fucking love it. I got to give it, yep. if I gave it anything, I, I don't think, you know, like, I think I could probably like Luna. I, th- I think like you, I could find qualms with it if I really tried, but mm-hmm. every time I watch it, it hits me the same time, the same way that it did before. And I just have to give it a five out of five. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it, it's earned it. It's got, it's got little quibbles here and there, but I mean, that does not take away from what the film's doing at all. And, you know, you can pardon a million dollar budget less than, you know, a first time director. Cause there's actually a great quote from Clive Barker where he's like, you know, I didn't know anything about filmmaking. And he's like, if you had told me a plate of spaghetti was a lens, I probably would have believed you. That is like quote unquote Clive Barker. Like he was a guy who had the passion to do this, had no idea of the technical. And he had no idea what spaghetti was. No. (laughs) But I love that people, you know, like Tony Randall, the head of, uh, was that New World um, who released this? Uh, You know, he edited the film and he helped and nurtured. Like the creatives acknowledge that we have this genius right here and they nurtured a talent Mm -hmm. and the man's film school thesis is essentially Hellraiser. And that's insane. Mm -hmm. Like it's fantastic. God, I love this movie. I'm just going to keep saying that because it's true. true, Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It's he's the only celebrity I've ever written to. I wrote to him when I was a kid. It took six months, but he wrote back and (laughs) yeah, it's just, Uh I love Barker's amazing. And so the world's, because I love that, like, you know, for as famous as the Cenobites rightfully are, they're in, what, like, five minutes of this movie? Yeah, but in that five minutes, they leave, like, two hours worth of impact. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, I, that's my favorite thing about what Barker does as, like, a, a creator. It's in his books, and it just, when he allows, he, he tells very intimate stories that have these broader implications to, like, the reality of of the world and i love that the cenobites are brought in and we're really not given enough to even question what the fuck they are we we almost know what they are instinctively and he just leaves so much open and, and like he didn't really personally i think touch the mythos again until scarlet gospels which was what five years ago mm-hmm. yeah um, yeah and it's but it's insane how much heavy lifting all this imagery does like he's almost like a subconscious genius yeah because i mean if you're watching hellraiser for the first time and, and you're you you don't know about the subsequent development in the in, of the mythos in the films and the other materials like the comics etc if you're just watching it fresh 
like there's lots of questions you know Mm -hmm. being honest but when you're watching it you don't really care about the questions because you you get enough and it's so visually spectacular it's such a tight film it just um you know it it definitely like lands where it needs to oh yeah 100 percent. and even the um i don't know have any of you read the novella it's based off of the uh, Hellbound. I have not, but I I watched a pretty good like uh, a little while ago in preparation for this. There was a really good YouTube video that broke down like the differences, uh, what they kind of changed, what they uh, what they left in. So smartly, the, the the changes. This is one of those great adaptations, and from my understanding, the novella and the screenplay were written kind of simultaneously to each other. Uh, it was always intended to be like a film, and you know, like it's just it's really character relationship changes that are the big things, and maybe a more definitive idea of what the Cenobites are. Mm-hmm. But it's it's a wonderful adaptation. I think making Kirsty the biggest change is making Kirsty. I think she's Larry's assistant who has a crush on him, and making her the the daughter and mm-hmm. also props to christy because i she's one of my favorite like final girls and survivors. She's super smart she's awesome yeah is it christy or kirsty i'm always like kirsty kirsty mm-hmm. okay Kirstie. like it's that was kirsty sounds yeah like different than what yeah, i'm used to yeah thirsty for kirsty <laughs> lord <laughs> It's whatever strange country they're supposed to be in, because for some reason they wanted to hide the Britishness of the film and dumped oh, yeah. everybody over. I, really yeah. odd. Um, it's, you know, it's, and one of the things that I think is kind of interesting, I know, like, we, um, I'm trying to remember who it was that said, like, the jokingly was like the puzzle box is so easy to solve. Um, but. Mean. Yeah, so I think what's what's kind of interesting about like part three. Uh, I don't like that movie very much, but I do like that they brought Kirsty back to kind of like uh, do like this like exposition. Yeah, thing. yeah, uh, basically, and where she says like the box actually guides you, like you, it like kind of makes you figure it out. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, it wants to be solved. Like it almost well, kind of pushes, almost guides you, like autonom- autonomously. I've always looked at the box itself as just like a very elegant metaphor for our own sexuality and genitalia. So it's like it's made for one thing and our you know, the box is made to be solved, our genitalia is made to be used for reproduction, you know, reasonings, you know, biologically speaking. Um, you know, I, that's how I always so it's like I've always viewed Hellraiser as you you just you play with your box <laughs> and then you discover a whole other world. <laughs> of of these yeah. new experiences and and you meet people who at first are scary and strange and some of them might dress weird and have piercings and uh they you explore more and you discover what you do and you don't like and you know it's almost like the trapping of sex and the trapping of uh getting lost in like a fetish world where maybe you start to push things too far mm-hmm. you know exploration stops mm-hmm. being fun and like i've always gotten yeah. that sense that it like guided you much in the way that we are we naturally guide ourselves yeah i definitely i definitely get that vibe where like my take on it is that it's not chiding someone for being hedonistic that's not the reason why 
you pull you get pulled into the Cenobites realm. What it is is it's a sort of natural consequence of taking it overridingly far. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's how selfish. I saw it. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and I mean, there's the whole aspect of like forbidden pleasure, forbidden fruit. I mean, I feel like that's kind of something brilliantly kind of weaved and like um, just all throughout the entire thing, like the forbiddenness of Julia's relationship with Frank and, you know, the perverseness of, you know, sleeping with, uh, um, you know, your brother-in-law on your, on your wedding night, um, your wedding day or whatever. But like, you know, I mean, again, I, I, it's like you said, it doesn't necessarily, the movie, I never read it as like it's chastising you for these things. It's it, it's almost like not really celebrating, but like just awakening. Well, yeah, because it's not like uh, the traditional picture of hell is, is this realm of torment, right? Like it's just, you know, the infliction of suffering because you've been a bad, bad person also known as you've just been like a human. And I guess that's bad to your sky dad. (laughs) For this, it's not the same thing because if you were to even ask people that have suffered what the Cenobites have to offer, they'll explicitly describe it as the, the, basically the distinction between pleasure and pain is gone almost. Well, it's also look at the time in which it was written. Uh, you know, in the middle of, of AIDS becoming a thing. And it's, it's in some ways, it's about exploring sex without realizing the consequences because most people who open the box do so without realizing what it actually means. Right. And like it's, it's, I, I, it totally doesn't chastise you for that, but it needs, it does warn you that look, like those whips could easily become hooks and yeah. your flesh is tender. Yeah. And, and listen, like, I think this is exactly what, I mean, it, it's so interesting that, you know, we did Elm Street 2 and and Hellraiser because, like, like one is clearly, like, an interesting way to, uh, you know, contextualize um, fetishism and mm-hmm. sex and even, like, AIDS in a nuanced, interesting and not like really troubling way. And then you have Elm street, which is like, we're going to do the opposite of that. Uh, so, I mean, it, it puritanical. Almost. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it's, it's so fascinating. Like, like watching those almost like back to back. It's like, you can definitely see like creator intent. Like you can see like, mm-hmm. you know, Barker had a very clear, strong vision and followed it through where Elm street's kind of a weird mishmash. Um, yeah, and it's the dangers of repression and expression. You know, this ended up being a more interesting <laughs> double feature than I thought. Well, yeah, because I mean, I mean, you know, if, if you look at in almost every world faith and almost every like philosophical, like coherent philosophical moral system, even going back to like Aristotelian virtue ethics and Confucianism, you know, there's this emphasis on you know the doctrine of the mean, if you will, where it's it's not that some you know the, the virtue is basically between the extremes of too much and too little in so many categories of existence and that kind of carries over into to this pairing if you will in a lot of ways yeah yeah it's it's just a fascinating cuz they're both roughly made around the same time and they're they're both very much 
expressions from creators who I, I you could almost look at it as like Barker has embraced his sexuality, isn't afraid of it, and has always been out. Mm-hmm. And then you have somebody like David Chaskin who is clearly terrified of anything sexual and i say clearly because you're clearly terrified <laughs> of sex dude uh, you have a lot of issues you need to fucking work out and i hope you do um but like it, it's it's really like as as mike said it's like that that kind of you know the uh the freedom versus the the kind of more chaste and it, it's uh it's this ended up being because at first I, I struggled honestly when we decided we were doing these two films i'm like how <laughs> and then it's like, you know, talking to you all, it's just like, oh, that's mm-hmm. exactly what we should have done. Yeah, it's just, it's, yeah, yeah. Because I mean, yeah. And it's so interesting, too, that they're, they're one, that they are um, so close together in time period, mm-hmm. uh, you know, being two years apart. And then yeah. I, one of the things that I just love about these to kind of like slide into to discussing the thematic elements is... Uh, it's it's a very powerful film and film series for me because kind of like like Luna, I, I really always have gravitated towards that more uh, alternative community, alternative aesthetic. Once I knew it was a thing, mm-hmm. and then to speak for just myself, like I I think that we are in such a puritanical society because some idiots had stupid ideas back in the 1700s and made everybody feel bad for being themselves in america and it bleeds over into every aspect of life even the mpaa rating system to be honest yep uh is driven Boo, by it. the greatest monsters uh, so stupid it's like you uh if you take your clothes off it's x if you take the skin off after that it goes back to r what the fuck um <laughs> You know what? what the hell do you actually that? want to hear my favorite bit of censorship stories I've, I've ever heard involving like a, a it was a TV show Hannibal. They, there's a scene in one of the uh, first seasons where they have two people who have been skinned. They're nude and their their back skin has been stretched like angel wings. And the uh, the censors had the problem because you could see the top part of their butt crack. So That's they digitally telling. smeared they digitally smeared blood over the butt crack and they were okay with it wow wow this is all you need to know yeah yeah that sounds yeah. about right that certainly softens the image yeah though. doesn't it <laughs> yeah but yeah exactly yeah. so like i feel like the, the fact that this film both portrays not just sexuality but also kink which is to speak for just myself yes. but not to air my laundry too much which is something that i think is great and I think it's a part of a lot of people's lives and should be and should be something we can fucking talk about, let alone embrace. 100%. I am always here for normalization of all of that. I mean, I, yes. I literally mm-hmm. work at a, at a goth and fetish club. So, yeah. Which is straight up, by the way, awesome. Um, <laughs> so I love that this, because, you know, there, there's so little, just kind of like I, the last film is important to me because there's so little representation of male bisexuality this one's this whole series is important to me personally because there's so little representation of kink in a way that normalizes it in a critical way but isn't damning isn't judging i mean the series was inspired by his visit to an snm club where people were hanging from hooks right exactly and we've all been there right (laughs) and it is it is. It does have like some, uh, like, I would say necessarily queer coding, but 
you get to see Pinhead and these Cenobites that present as male, but may who knows what the hell they are? Like they can, mm-hmm. they're they're Cenobites, but Pinhead certainly presents as male, and mm-hmm. he's doing stuff to people, mm-hmm. and it's mm-hmm. fine. Yeah. It's fine. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Like, uh, regardless of gender, regardless of anything, like, it's not. It's just practices that are inevitable once you've solved the box, and absolutely, there's not even a flinch. Right. Yeah. Because even uh, Frank, you know, who's presented in Julia's mind as a heteronormative male, the he he's really open to it all. Exactly. Like, exactly. He, he describes it as like both a wondrous and terrible thing. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, it's just like, he's just a restless soul. So he gets bored Which and he wants out. I do have to say on one hand makes it, makes him kind of feel like to me, like a, like a tourist. Um, yes. Like the I folks that. that come into the bar and they're like, so Ooh. we hear this is a gentleman's club. Where can we sit? <laughs> what can we do? And we're like, get out leave no this is not for you goodbye um so like in that sense you know when i watch it i'm always like oh frank but i mean if he's into it he's into it so you know like let let the cenobites do their thing yeah and and to be fair like we don't exactly know why frank escaped you know like not precisely Mm mm-hmm I, it it kind of goes into it in two, but I guess if you just isolate, there are no sequels. Yeah, right. You know, right, right, right. It definitely like expands a lot, but like off, on its own devices too. There's some interpretive license. So the, the yes. one thing I, I the only thing that I kind of don't like about part two, um, and it'll be really interesting to think uh, hear what you all think. But like when so okay in, in part two, you know, like Frank's hell is you know he has all these beautiful women, but he can never touch them or do anything. And I'm like, I, I, I kind of wish that, you know, I like, like part of me, like, is think like thinks that's kind of brilliant. And the other part of me is like, you know, it, it just reduces it down to like, I think it would have been cool if there was like men and women in that those weird tunnel things that keep retracting and, and protracting. But I think that it has to do with like switch over to a straight director too. Like yeah. I, I think like a straight director, whereas in Barker's always embraced all sexualities. I think he's a gay man, but he's admitted, you know, I dated and had sexual relations with older women in my younger years while I was still kind of figuring things out. And, you know, he's open to all these different experiences. I mean, a lot of his literature is about people discovering these things for the first mm-hmm. time. Um, a magic, a cold heart Canyon is entirely that. Um, so like it, it, it's, I, I agree with you a hundred percent, but then for the sequel, you have somebody like Tony Randall come in who I believe is a straight man who would never see it through that lens. Yeah. You know, so it's like, it's a little like, it's like, his normal sexual. Yeah, to me, it's like, he, it's like safe. And I hate that with, his, yes, with, with, I agree something with you. like that. Yeah, I like, I mean, if anything, you should escalate if that's possible. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Not pull back. Just but... have, have demons there for... Frank would be all about the demons. He's he's, he's everything. Or, it's, it's... Yeah, it could be like a demon that's like maybe like, uh, you know, bi-gender, which would be really interesting. Um... It's just, you know, because Frank's always looking for new pleasures, so why not deny him the ultimate newest pleasure, this 
thing that only exists for him and it's it's but then i think that's when you get into a straight mentality you know not really understanding the kind of queer coding of the first one and, and the kind of broader sexual terms because it's it's sexual tunnel vision you know well and then also like he you know because of his participation in 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 you know like uh, kink and queer communities even if certain practices weren't his he was definitely well aware of the yes. wide range of human sexuality in a way that yes. yeah if if that's not someone's bag you wouldn't even necessarily know to look into what those practices are yes it's Let alone like uh, have any of you ever read a, a magica by clive barker I no there's not. A wonderful character by the name of Pio Pa, who is both a prostitute and an assassin. And Pio Pa, Pio, we could all be sitting in a room with Pi, and we would all be seeing something different. We could all participate together in something with Pi, and it would be completely different. Physic. It's it's Barker. It's a constant thing with him. Is that like we need to open ourselves up to the idea of. N- sexual exploration and like almost sexual fluidity comes through a lot and i've always gathered that frank was completely fluid but like luna said he's a complete tourist yeah. he's he's a hedonist in the most perverted sense in that he's he's only in it for himself because he's a narcissist on top of it all well, yeah and you can tell that at the very end yeah yep yeah yeah are, are there any other themes that people <laughs> seriously though like, <laughs> oh a piece of shit <laughs> yeah i'm wearing your dad and i want to have you join in with this stuff like it's so gross it's so gross yeah i'm really glad they got him with them hooks yeah like the whole like come to daddy thing like okay did anyone else just have that apex twin song stuck in their head afterwards for like a whole (laughs) because he's like come to daddy and and that video reiterates it and i'm like come to daddy do y'all remember that video (laughs) for that I yes. love that video with that amazing. giant demon screaming at that old lady. Well, yeah, I mean that old, that old lady knows what she did. Yeah, who hasn't been a giant gaunt demon screaming at an old lady from that's, television? That's that's I call that Tuesday. In my notes, I have written that in May of 2021, the re, the remake rights were purchased by Hulu. Hulu is owned by mm-hmm. Disney. Ergo, uh, Pinhead is a, a, a Disney princess. Oh, him and the Xenomorph yep. Queen. Julie is a, a princess. I, 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 I don't know if this is the appropriate time, but I really want to dispute the anti-Julia people in this room. Like, what's going yes, on? Yes, please. Thank All right, you. dispute away, bitch. Just my feelings got really hurt right there. No, um, <laughs> like. <laughs> Because I, I I love her performance because she doesn't try to portray a sympathetic woman. What's she just portrays a woman who is selfishly diving into her own desires, no matter how destructive. But she does have one moment of complexity where he's coming out from the shadows while she's uh, yes. fucking Larry, and yes. later she gives in. But at the time, I don't know if she just didn't want to get messy with the blood or what it was. But she she like waved him off like mm, no no like but it's. But it's also a case of, like, Stockholm Syndrome in a lot of ways, because Frank has such an unnatural hold over her. And, like, there's, it's, it's a, a, I think, an interesting case of, like, uh, gaslighting and abuse. And, and uh-huh. Okay, well, Julia's how about complex. this? I, I think that Julia, the character, is interesting and complex. I did not like the portrayal of Aww, the character. Oh, she was, sure. I, I, 
So I, I, I love Claire. I, sh- I showed you all my picture with, with her and I, she was so sweet. She, she's yeah. like, I hate horror. I'm movies. sure she's a sweet person. Just she's like, what is it? What is it about the performance? Not believable. whatsoever. bored? Not, it felt like I was like looking at a cardboard cutout of a human playing Julia. I can kind of see that. I didn't hate it, but I didn't love it either. Look, I don't. I also don't have any personal like ties to this human. I'm sure they're wonderful. I hope that they did other roles that were amazing. I've done <laughs> dances that no one likes. It's fine. I just personally, <laughs> even in Hellbound. <laughs> I mean, maybe. <laughs> so like, oh wow. So in, in her defense, I, like I, I think she's a good, good actor in that. Like I think, especially, it's kind of amazing how. Um, she's so warm and fun to horror fans when she isn't a big genre fan. Um, but she, I, I think she kind of gave it her all, but like, um, I mean, that's great. Maybe, you know, maybe I need to see it from that perspective of like, like, you know, once I get to, once I do meet an actor, I usually am more like receptive to their performances. And so maybe I just need to meet her. Yeah. And, and you're not, I mean, I mean, you and Jeff aren't wrong. There's, there's like a kind of like a cold, uh, like I, I read it, I interpret it more as it's a coldness sometimes when That's she's underplaying. But I've never yeah. met, I've never met her. I just, I just always kind of loved how, fuck, she's not as arch. Like you could almost go like mommy dearest with Julia, and it, it yeah. could work. Yeah, and I, I like that she went the opposite direction with her and portrayed someone who is far more internal and calculating than even she knows and what i like what i kind of like about julia is i think a lot of uh she really becomes herself in the second film because that's part of what i love is that she thinks she's found this personal freedom and she thinks she's found this expression in frank and he's just a selfish asshole who stabs her Mm -hmm. and leaves her for dead and her her arc is actually like wonderfully cut off she never gets to become full villain. She never gets to, because there's always the sense of doubt. And then when, in the second one, when she rises out of the mattress yeah, and, uh, you know, she's just fully formed because Barker has actually stated he wanted her to be the villain of the series. Yeah. Like the queen of hell. I, 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 so yeah. bad and that's wish- cool. I'm just talking about the first film. Yeah. Yeah. Which in all fairness, but I like her coldness. Mm-hmm. It, it, I, I kind of like that she didn't go as like arch as a lot of people would go for. I like the distance. So was it the coldness that maybe you were reading as like a, like a wooden portrayal that she was bringing to the role or like maybe uh, something that was, I feel like it was more than lacking in direction. I read the coldness and I appreciated that. I didn't think that that was poor acting necessarily. It was more like when it got to the more complex moments, um, I felt like the depth was like a centimeter, whereas like a foot would have been nice. Yeah, I, I definitely would have to agree. Yeah. And like, yeah. th- like since this was Clyde Barker's first full-length movie, uh, like even uh, the quote that you pulled, Andrew, about the plate of spaghetti being used as a, a camera lens, and he he would believe you. Um, I, I think that might have just been like a oh, oh, probably. Uh, I mean, I'm not part. like trying probably. to bash anybody. I'm just saying my personal feeling. Mm-hmm about that know. performance was not my favorite it's it's actually like kind of a strange trend with uh barker as a director because I, I i think about craig sheffer in nightbreed a lot and how one note 
the he's obviously in love with this man in front of the camera but he doesn't yeah. do enough to draw him out like i almost think that barker's focus is you you know the more normal you are you know uh he's probably a little less interested in you because his it's almost all on frank yeah it feels like for me yeah for me it seems like julia because i would agree with you luna about your your take on julia's performance um in in this film but for me it almost seems too like a little bit amplified by the fact that she's except for certain segments of the film she's not giving the most interesting stuff to do compared to everything else that's happening that's true yeah but that's also like means there's more impetus on the performance to shine and it doesn't right but it's also an an, an unenviable position to be in right do you do you sometimes wonder if like a non-horror fan who is now in a horror work and then becomes identified, like, do you think it was maybe like, she didn't really believe in the project because she thought it was maybe beneath her. And then when, after she saw it, she's like, Holy shit. It is. It's actually pretty good. Well, she was never really a, a horror fan or like a genre fan in general, as, as Mike was alluding to earlier. Uh, from what I remember, um, when they were screening the premiere, she had to leave within like 10 minutes. Like oh, wow. she, and like, I think she's never even seen the full film. Yeah. I, I, I believe I remember her saying something like that to me where she was like, you know, I'm glad people love it. And I love fans. <laughs> and, and no, she was so sweet. Yeah. She was like, you know, I, you, you guys rock. I, I adore all y'all, but like, I've never actually seen this full film myself, but um, I don't know. I, I, I just never read. Um, I never read it as a, a bad performance. I don't know. Well, I think also <laughs> like this was her second performance. I mean, I refuse to look back at videos of horrible pieces. I was in. <laughs> I didn't mean that. Okay. That's, that's worse. I meant like my performance was bad. I love Luna so much. It's beautiful. Oh, look, all I'm going to say, Luna, is you need to tread very carefully because otherwise, when you solve the puzzle box, you're just going to have Julia's to watch her swing. performance only for a long time until you escape, probably with the help of ghost children. Wait, what happened to the pleasure part of pain? <laughs> <laughs> the ghost child, the, the occasional ghost child. I mean, with with her being kind of coldness, like I, I her coldness, I, I also kind of felt like this. It was very like, even though in the movie they they tried to, um, no pun intended, hammer you over the head with uh, it being like said in America, but like I always kind of like thought that she was like the, like a very cold, uh, closed. She's off. a stranger everywhere. Well, I yeah. think this is this this is the problem with like. I think there's certain types of characters that don't all that have to be very adeptly portrayed to be engaging because of the nature of what their character is. It may not be interesting unless the person can pull something extra to it. Right. Like I think being cold is one of those attributes where it's really easy for it to be boring and very hard for it to be exciting. And then like, I mean, I would always say, I know this is like beloved. Okay. It's a controversial opinion <laughs> uh, about a non-horror property. I love Zendaya as an actress in general. Right. But I don't like the way her character is written in euphoria, even though I like euphoria as a whole. I haven't started euphoria yet. This is not really going to spoil much because like the premise is that she's a very anxious character who has like a lot of addictions. Right. Mm -hmm. And I don't 
find it interesting to just watch someone want to get their nests fixed because they're anxious. Like I don't find her part of the show is about more than her. And I find the rest of it very engaging, but Hmm. her particular character does not. She becomes part of the setting. Yeah. I like it when she's just sidelined for other characters, but it just, I don't find that kind of character engaging no matter Mm -hmm. how good the performance. And it's the same way with a cold character for me sometimes. Well, it, mm-hmm. I think it's also we don't see enough of Julia's internal struggles. Like she doesn't, as, as uh, I think what Luna said, she gave a centimeter, and we needed a foot. I can do whatever the fuck I want. I think being a European foot. Yeah, exactly. No, exactly. She was so wrong about the centimeter; it wasn't even the right. <laughs> yep. No, it's. Because it is there. I've always liked it, but I, I think a lot of it's because I don't divorce Hellraiser one and two from each other. It's oh, okay. always I watch them always yeah, back to yeah, back. The They're very much one film for, sure. for me. I see. I try to when we yeah. when we do our episodes. I try to like watch it's the one film. Yeah. yeah. I just. I did this time. It's just like I can't unthink the two of them together. Like they're just permanently in, yeah. in my brain as one entity. It's almost like the original Halloween and Halloween two for a very long time. Yeah. We're just. Almost one movie <laughs> in my brain. Yeah, uh, yeah. With one I feel being that. clearly better, you know, with a very much better first half than a second right. half. Well, uh, thank you, like, uh, Andre, for like pointing out the fallacy in my um, acting depth. I mean, hey, analogy. from one artist to another. <laughs> Do not back down on <laughs> what I was you. saying. No. No. Um, I, I was going to say that uh, I, I think that. Uh, one of one of the issues that I think her character uh, suffers from is like playing a backseat to the main villain Frank in in the first film, where like she's kind of delegated as like the uh, uh, surrogate bad guy. It's like she's like yes, uh, killing people for him. So she's really just kind of his uh, Renfield almost lackey. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And like she finally gets some like spotlight in the second film, but there really wasn't much in the first film for her to do and to get. So uh, I, I think it, it cheapens the effect of her getting what she uh, deserves for her in like the first half mm-hmm. versus what getting her getting what she deserves for Kirsty in like the second part. Um, and her character seems a little bit like a, if you took like a hammer horror character, like that, that cold detached British lady, yeah. Like, uh, but you put her into a, a project that isn't really uh, compatible with like the hammer mold. Two dimensional. Because yeah, Clyde Barker just character. did something so different with this that like I don't think you could even equate it to something that would run alongside even like Hammer's best. Yeah, um, it's. Yeah, I, and you know, I, I have to say, like, I kind of find Kirsty to be kind of the least interesting character, if I'm being honest. <laughs> um, like, I love her performance. Like, I think it's good. I just think that... I don't know. Like, I like the bartering. Like, it's really yeah, intelligent, even I, though it doesn't totally pan. She doesn't have, like... I, I, I almost feel like Kirsty was given too little... Sc- I, I honestly think... Kirsty and Julia are both sadly not given enough 
either of them to do. Like I like Kirsty because, you know, she once again because of Hellbound, um, you know, which is just a bigger it's it's all around just a bigger uh take on on because this is you know once again it's a budget thing they were pretty much like we need you to be able to make a movie about three people in a house and they they had to make a i think this the budget was like nine hundred thousand dollars for this which Mm -hmm. even back then wasn't a lot of money and uh i i think sadly our most interesting characters should be probably julia and Kirsty with like because Frank is so arch and like Larry is the one guy who I don't think gets enough love. Poor Larry, <laughs> the uh, that sucker had no chance. Yeah. I didn't like, want to know more about Larry. I was like, let's go back up to the room. That room that looks like a crime scene. Yeah, let's go back up there. <laughs> That's where I was. Too. I was like, just like, um, why are why are the Cenobites gone? I would I would like to see more of them, please. Like, uh uh-huh, dinner party. Uh-huh, bad jokes. Like. No, that let's go upstairs. Yeah, like this oh, isn't see, modern family. Like I don't need but that's, to be. That, but I want it to be modern family with Cenobites because to me that's like <laughs> so fascinating is that these people have these boring dinner parties and live these trivial lives when there are celestial beings out there who would gladly rip their flesh off for an eternity. And like to me, hobo cricket eating hobos that turn into giant skeletons that fly around and yes i call it a skeleton um why not like you know like these are the things that like i i i just like i love the idea of like these normal people like uh to go back to poltergeist which is something we were talking about i think before uh we started recording um the normalcy being disrupted by something so horrendously abnormal is what i love about hellraiser because i think what the sequels start to get into is the more we go to that crime scene the less shocked and the less elegant Mm -hmm. it is as you start to see it in brighter and brighter light true but i mean like we did have to go through that whole like reminiscing of the affair situation and that was Mm -hmm. something (laughs) <laughs> yeah. yeah i mean i, I mean think she, but i hear you i hear i hear what you're saying andrew like i i appreciate yeah. the background of like this is just normal life and then all of this mm-hmm. other stuff is happening so now there's a contrast which adds more depth and blah 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 but, like i i totally I, get that i just feel like in the film in the first film hellraiser like we have enough of julia to give us a contrast against that so we're true. good there are some, if we're going to be like fully honest, some storytelling issues, like yes, with you know where certain segments go, like that 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 scene, the the dinner scene is kind of awkwardly shoehorned yeah. in there. You have like some pacing issues with when things are introduced and like some convenient plot contrivances for the fact that like. Um, it's their house, but Larry never goes upstairs, no matter what's happening. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like he never, he can hear people, he can hear rats, and he's always just like, oh. And she's like, oh, go do a thing, and he's like, okay, doop doop doop. Like mm-hmm. there's some, there's there's some shorthand contrivances and some structural issues yes. in the film. But what makes it, I think, still land as a whole is that like they div- Barker clearly knew what he was doing with the world building with the Cenobites, with the stuff that really make it unique. And those are probably also where 99% of his attention went. Yes. Nice. Yeah. Yes. yeah. And that's like yeah. where it should have gone, but maybe like scale it back to 95%, 5% the other <laughs> stuff. Yeah. 
it's it's sort of my hope for the remake is that they almost lean into the domestic stuff to give us more interesting characters whose lives can be literally ripped to pieces. Uh, that would be, I, would I would be cool with that. Does anyone know if this is going to yeah. be a series or a movie? Because I think a series would be really interesting. I, series, I don't know I yet. I don't, yeah. Um, I think it's a series. That sounds okay, right, because I'm not that, 100% sure. I mean, then you would definitely have um, the caveat of more money and time to devote and flesh mm-hmm. out... Um, or rather, deflesh out uh, where the you know mm-hmm. whether the case be, but um, yeah, I, I gosh, I like, I hope it's good. The the Hulu thing, like the cynical side of me is like, it's probably not going to be good. Hey, <sighs> if it doesn't, if it if it isn't good, we could just watch the movie on repeat forever. Yeah, and I'm, I'm okay fine with that. that. Yeah, we do have that in our in our corner. It's. It's disturbing though, like when you go back through like all the failed stuff. Like the gentleman who made Martyrs yes. was going to yeah. do, uh, a, he was going to do it for a while, and he quit because the Weinstein's wanted to make it teen oriented, mm. and that was like Gross. the strange bend. That, That's a like, good reason kept... to quit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he was like, "I want to be the source." It should debut on Kink.com <laughs> so that they make it X-rated <laughs> and it's not beholden to mainstream market honestly pressures. i think just give it to the french or the germans and we're we're gonna be good <laughs> yeah. flawless Ooh. as a co-production by uh by haneki and takashi Gaspar miike Noe. <laughs> oh my god takeshi miike's hellraiser uh, would be yes. i, w- I, I don't know too i mean listen auditions already kind of a little hellraiser ish and i love it and also it so is ichi the killer Oh, Ichi is, yeah. Well, I and... mean, he's going to be a Cenobite. <laughs> if anyone's going to be a Cenobite. Do you, um, one of the things that I, I, I wanted to ask about um, all of you with Hellraiser is when you first watched this film, what was your direct reaction to the violence? Because I can remember mine is just visceral and but i was so oddly i i found it to be pretty in a completely disgusting way and it, it was like both somehow simultaneously a turn on and a turn off um yeah not with like a sexual connotation but you know what i mean like like i'm young and i love gore i've never seen anything like this i'm repulsed by this like h- how did you all react like when you first sat down for hellraiser and that hook pierced that flesh or pinhead showed up what was like your moment what can you do you remember it? Excited I'm, gasp and then giggling. Yeah. I, I don't think I've ever smiled wider. Uh, I like back then and now. I definitely do consider myself as a, a gorehound, and I'm like whenever that shit happens in a movie, like I could not be happier. I don't know what it is. Same. I just I love the shit out of it. Well, it's funny, yeah. like, I um, don't love gore for its own merits. Like, that's not enough on its own to sell True. me something, you know? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But, uh, and, and by the way, I wasn't saying it is for for any of you, but I'm, I'm saying for me, it just depends on the other qualities. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I I loved that they actually cut away from the gore up front, but then really went into it later. So it's like a nice tease to get you in the mindset and then when you're more emotionally committed then it went full tilt and i really loved the way that the film did that absolutely super cleverly executed 
yeah. agree. Yeah, it's it's it also like thankfully this this work because I I just I'd never seen anything like it so I I it, it allowed me to explore like the work of like Francis Bacon and art opened up in a way that it never had uh, photography had opened up in a way that it never had to me before and it was directly linked to this wonderful horrible film that i should not have watched when i was like eight nine years old like and this film's i I think for a lot of people around our age and and people who saw it around the ages that we all did this film's like it's almost like a a stop on your road to horror baptism yeah Mm -hmm. your first experience with hellraiser and if anybody who listened to this rambling nonsense has never seen the film i i can't nothing can prepare you even if you think you're ready for it yeah, yeah. I, think, I think like the... go ahead mike no um I'm, i was just um you know that's such an interesting question uh that you asked andrew and i feel like I, you know again and like kind of like my review i feel i it just i definitely felt like there was sometimes when i mean i mean not even really just the sex scenes per se um just because you know i i knew very young i was not into um heterosexual sex but um you know just like some of the uh like imagery you know like was like uh there's like that shot um that i remember like kind of blew my mind as as like seeing it like as a um like in my early teens of like frank like rotating and his like chest and back and everything gets like progressively more bloody it's not particularly gory by any means but it definitely like stoked and sparked something um erotic in me like i I don't care if that sounds Mm -hmm. weird um but uh yeah i don't know it just uh it definitely felt like um everything all clicked in my head as far as like um this kind of pain pleasure kind of like you know Sometimes twisted imagery can be kind of sexy um, or er- er- erotic. Um. Yeah, well, and I mean, also, I think that it's, um, and this is something that I, I think it means for me sometimes, but and maybe it's different for you, but I think it's also empowering to know that people can be a certain way and can like a certain thing. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. yes. to, to know that it's a thing that can be leaned into is empowering. Hell yeah. 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 Oh. But yeah, um, so I don't know. I mean, I'm sure, you know, no one really watches that and like that's a turn on or something, but I just well, I know as like a you know, in my uh I mean especially in my younger days when I was like kind of exploring stuff that was um maybe kind of kinky or um not really exploring like like actually doing it, but just like thinking about it or you know early internet uh stuff but um yeah i don't know it was just something that just tapped into this like almost like primal like bloodlust thing i don't know that's probably fucked it's up, visceral but... <laughs> everyone i've ever talked to who connected with this film it's always a visceral reaction they have to it because it's there's nothing like it. I mean, even sequels or things that were inspired by Hellraiser, there's never been anything like this. Like, I still remember the first time, even though I saw Hellbound first, when 
Pinhead, I think it's right in the beginning, right after they take Frank, when he just stands up with the box and you have that kind of spotlight down on him, the way the shadows fall with the uh, rotating columns surrounding him and that the sound. and Or even Kirsty's dream when there's that shape under the sheet and the blood and the baby yeah. starts mm-hmm. to scream as chicken feathers like mm-hmm. fly through the air. It's just... It's such a visceral, like this movie taps into dreads I didn't even realize I had because I didn't know I should fear them yet. And it's somehow new. Yeah. And, and I, again, I don't know like if it's common or uncommon or if it was like planned or not planned. I mean, it almost feels like a movie that's about pain and pleasure would kind of invoke these kind of like odd feelings yeah. or like, I mean, definitely like seeing frank in some you know positions like that well i mean like it was inspired by his own viewing people being on hooks in an s&m club you know what i mean like yeah and that sparked they do for him in the same way it's kind of doing the same thing to the audience which is probably what he had in mind yeah and i mean it's like it's stuff that i find erotic that's not necessarily even like the sex scenes because i feel like the sex scenes in that are like the least i mean ironically for me anyways they're like the least sexy scenes but like something where you didn't like seeing like larry's weirdly leave larry alone (laughs) that guy had a really really bad week leave larry alone i will not leave come on like you don't you don't want to see his like weirdly timed thrusting and awkward positions (laughs) No, but, but, a, he went to the Tommy Wiseau school of love making. Oh God, yeah. like the hip. Oh, That's boy. her belly button, friend. <laughs> but yeah, no. But I mean, it's like, like so, why are we reusing footage? I mean, <laughs> oh boy. Again, I don't know. Um, like I've poor Larry. Maybe I'm alone in that, and that's fine. But I feel like there's definitely no, some not. erotic scenes that are definitely like not the sex scenes. Um, I, oh no! Abs- I mean, the, the whole thing is erotic, really. Like it's bathed in eroticism, mm-hmm. you know. I mean, look at the way you solve the puzzle. Like it's you're rimming a box. Like you're, you know, like it's it's yeah. not subtle. <laughs> like, yeah, I mean, like I, I think I think it's about time for us to wrap. But I, I, I <laughs> no, like, no, okay. I mean, <laughs> no, because you always end on a high note and leave them wanting more. Um, <laughs> You're like, okay, we need, just to, saying, we need to shut it down now. We now we're talking about some fucked up stuff, though. Let's <laughs> No, no, no. I'm saying you leave on a high note. No, I mean, but it just emphasizes it underscores though the entire reason why this was a powerful one to mm-hmm. uh to include on today's celebratory episode, and also why it's one of the reasons why it's not, you know it's not loudly waving a rainbow flag, but why it's important to a lot of folks in the queer community, because it embraces these things that we're taught to hide. And it not only like waves it loudly, it waves it so fucking loudly. It implies this entire realm of the afterlife about it. (laughs) It screams it like that uh, demon in the Aphex twin video screams at that old lady. You know, mm-hmm. and that I think that's knows empowering. what she did. First of all, <laughs> yeah, uh, <laughs> yep, and that that'll teach you to lose the remote. Yep. <laughs> I think we should end it there. It's a high note, uh, folks at home. By the way, uh, thank you for staying with us and and uh, on this long. But uh, I I enjoyed myself. <laughs> oh yeah, we enjoyed ourselves. Episode. Hell yeah. Uh, 
And uh, yes. so, folks at home, just, um, you know, hopefully you in, enjoy these films and hopefully you find yourselves in the company of people that make you feel empowered and all the shit about your life and yourself that are awesome, which is hell yeah, which is a hundred percent of you. You are uh, seen, you are needed. Stick around, please. Thanks. And you're one of us and we have your back. One of us, one of us. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> um, so thank you for spending some time with us and uh, uh, lovely co-hosts. Would you like to tell the audience at home where they can find you? Mike, how about you go first? Sure. Uh, so I am uh, often on Twitter at Strange Cinema sixty five. Uh, you can find me. Uh, you can find my book, uh, The Ultimate Guide to Strange Cinema, um, on Amazon, and um, you can also uh, find my letterbox. Uh, it's Kubrick six double five three two one. Fantastic. Thank you so much, um, uh, Luna. Where can the folks at home find you? Uh, you can find me on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at L-U-N-A underscore M-I-N-U-I-T. And you will see whatever the hell I'm up to in the moment. Oh, yes. Looking forward to it. Thank you very much. Andre, what you got? Uh, you can find me on Letterboxd at Hamburger Harry uh, or Twitter Demon Disc. TM. Trademark. Uh, or you can just do <laughs> at Fritz Merrill H. Uh, F-R-I-T-Z-M-E-R-R-I-L-L-H. Thank you so much. And Andrew, last, certainly not least, good sir. Uh, uh, what you got for the folks at home? You can find me on the very excellent podcast, Humanoids from the Deep Dive. Wait, wait, wait. That's all I got. Yeah. <laughs> That's all I'm doing right now. So. Yeah, yeah. Uh, humanoids from the Deep Dive. Yeah, so... <laughs> Uh, is that every the smart one that talks about monsters and no, stuff? It is. It, it is, is that one. God, I love that one. I know. I've heard there's a lot of exciting stuff coming up uh, with the humanoids. Yeah. I, heard, I heard rumblings about a Discord and, mm-hmm. you know, some really amazing content coming up Absolutely. in the next few weeks. And, and I hear that, that the host is a bit of a jerk, but that the, the co-hosts are great. Yeah, that always balances it out. Like, <laughs> that's what, yeah. He, yeah, that's he what pays, they all say. He, he, he pays us to say that. <laughs> uh, thank you. Anyway, thank you all so much for stopping by. Thank you, folks at home. Uh, we love you. You're amazing. Thank you for spending time with us. And you know where you can find me. You already did. So happy Pride Month yet again, everyone. And yes, happy Pride. Look yeah. forward to throwing you some amazing discussions later. Once more, I'd like to extend a special thanks to our guests this episode and to all of you out there listening. From the dawn of recorded human civilization, we've been fascinated by monsters and the monstrous. They've inhabited our dreams and nightmares, they've been our protectors and our villains, they've symbolized our fears and vices, our hopes and potential. Fears of creatures and the night that nourishes them were key inspirations and fuel for the rise of human civilization, the need to get out of the shadows, behind the walls, and into the light. In many ways, understanding our monsters is an important part of understanding our world and ourselves. So thank you for taking this journey with us, we humanoids from the deep dive.